Good morning. It is good to be here together. If you're here visiting for the first time, my name is Jason Harris. I'm, I will be your server this morning. The table has been set, and so now I'm bringing to you the meal. I didn't cook it, but I'm going to be presenting it to you to, to, to eat and to feast on. And it is some good stuff that the Lord has prepared for us this morning. Um, we're going to be in Second Chronicles once again, so if you brought your Bibles with you, turn to chapter 7. Last week we looked at this event where Solomon leads the temple in the dedication ceremony of the temple. And uh, we saw how looking at this through the lens of the gospel that it is a it is clearly a picture of salvation. The presence of God filling the temple like a cloud is symbolic of the way that the spirit of God fills us when we repent and give our lives to Jesus. The main part yesterday was looking at how The story says that the presence of God was so strong that the priests were unable to do what they were supposed to do as temple priests. And we learn that that is symbolic of the fact that when the Spirit of God comes into us, merit-based religion and performance-based works are done away with. Those things are prevented from having anything to do with our standing with God. Our standing with him is no longer based on what we do for him, but it is now entirely all about what he has done for us. There's something I want to clarify about the message yesterday. Uh, Sometimes when I'm speaking about something, I may not talk about or mention something simply because of the fact that in my mind, it is just a given. And um, last week was, was one of those things. Um, when I was talking about how God's presence filling the temple was a picture of salvation, in no way did I uh, mean that uh, to, to sound like those kind of experiences with God don't happen today. I mean, God's presence, at times, he will thrill us with his presence that seems a whole lot stronger than it does in other times that we are together. And I I mean, we've experienced times like that here in this place today. Um, I didn't say that last week because in my mind, that's just a given. Of course, that that can happen now. The whole point last week was that this text shouldn't be read as a how-to have those kind of experiences with God because that puts us at the center of the story. We should read it looking for Jesus rather than uh, for a way for us to have some sort of supernatural experience. Yes, we can have an experience where the presence of God comes in like a cloud, and I have been a part of times where that has happened, where the presence of God has been so strong that people were literally on their faces before God. All I was saying is that's not what that story is primarily about. It's ultimately about what Christ has done for us and what we have in him now. I think the mistake that we often make is that we try so hard to look for an experience that we completely miss Jesus. If we first look for Jesus, I promise you, he will provide all the experience you can handle. 
Last week, we talked a little bit about how to read the Old Testament in light of the gospel. And I want to show you an illustration that may help you understand this a little bit better. You'll often hear things referred to in the Old Testament as shadows. The shadow points us to the, the substance or the object that is casting the shadow. Here's a picture of what I'm talking about. Right here is a picture of a shadow. We have edited out the substance that cast a shadow, so all we see now is a shadow, and the shadow points us to the substance. Um, we don't know what the substance actually is, but we can tell a lot about it just by looking at the shadow. For instance, in this picture, we can see that uh, the substance more than likely is a woman. Uh, we know from the shadow that she has long hair and that she has pulled her hair back into a ponytail. And we can see that apparently that she is pregnant. But there's something about shadows, and that is that they are all imperfect. They give us clues about the substance, but not enough so that we can fully know it. And so if all we do is focus on the shadow, we're not going to know the substance very well at all. The shadow will only make sense in light of the substance. Show the next picture, RJ. And so there's the substance. When we look at the shadow now, it makes a whole lot more sense to us. We can see that, no, she wasn't pregnant at all. She was just carrying a bundle of clothes. And now that we have the substance to look at, the shadow makes a whole lot more sense. This is what I mean when I say that we can't read anything in the Bible apart from how it relates to Jesus. He is the substance that all the shadows are ultimately pointing to. Nothing here in God's Word will make a whole lot of sense to us if we don't read it in light of Him. Like I said last week, we won't interpret it correctly, nor will we be able to apply it to our lives the way that God intended for His Word to be applied. Now, with that in mind, we're going to read a little further in the story and discover more about what it means for us to be in Christ now. In chapter 6, Solomon leads the people in this big, long prayer during this ceremony. And then at the beginning of chapter 7, the presence of God fills the temple once again to where the priests aren't even able to enter into the temple. The people make a lot of animal sacrifices, and then there's this big celebration feast that everybody takes part in. We're going to pick up in verse 11. That happens next. So let's all stand together as we receive the word of the Lord, Second Chronicles 7, starting at verse 11. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord in the king's palace and successfully completed all that he had planned on doing in the house of the Lord and in his palace. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. 
Let's pray. God, I'm so grateful for the word that you have given us. God, I'm grateful for, for Jesus who makes sense of everything, not just your word, but also makes sense of our own lives for those of us who are in him. And Lord, I pray again that you would open our eyes to see him this morning. Lord, the Father of lies would want nothing more than to prevent us from hearing and receiving truth. And so I ask you right now, will you bring all the force of heaven against him in this place to prevent him from being able to do that? We come against any demonic spirit that is in opposition to the truth of God, and we declare that you are not welcome in this place, and in Jesus' name, you must leave. Lord, I pray that there be no distractions to us being able to hear what you have for us this morning. And God, that when we find Jesus this morning, God, we will have that encounter that changes us forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'm sure you probably recognized in this text a verse that gets quoted a lot in the church. Verse 14, especially in times like we are in now when it seems like our our country is going downhill fast. You know, last week I mentioned the fact that we just love plans and formulas. And so we will often read the Bible looking for them. And that's exactly what we've done with 2 Chronicles 714. We've taken it as a plan, a formula for how to save the United States of America. But again, when we do that, we have put ourselves at the center of the text. We make it all about us, completely divorced from how it actually relates to Jesus. You know, you hear me talk a lot about operating with an orphan mentality. Before we met Jesus, we were all orphans separated from the Father. And even though we have been made sons and daughters of him, it takes a while for that to sink in and for us to really understand what that means. And so until we do understand what that means, we still tend to operate from an orphan mentality, that perspective that we have been so used to living life through. And here's one example of that. You may have heard me say this before, that an orphan will always see a promise as a command. But a son, somebody that knows what it means to be a son or a daughter of the father, will always see a command as a promise. This is an example of that, 2 Corinthians seven fourteen, Folks, This verse has absolutely nothing to do with the United States of America. Now, I hate to burst your bubble unless by doing so it actually points you to Jesus and you find out something more about him. Now, as a nation, should we humble ourselves and pray and repent? Of course we should. And I would love nothing more than to see our nation do that. We need to be praying for our country. We need to be praying that God would send revival across this land like it has never seen before. All I'm saying is that this is not ultimately what that, this text is about. And yet this is another example of how we 
tend to take a verse completely out of context and apply it to whatever we want to, to apply it to our own desires and agenda. This is not an instruction of command for how to save the nation. This is a promise that we have as people of God redeemed by the blood of Jesus. It's not even about physical land. It's actually about something more, something greater, like we talked about last week. The context here, of course, is the dedication of the temple, which we now know is symbolic of a picture of salvation. And so we need to look at this in light of that fact. So let's look at this closer. In verse 12, God says, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. Something else to keep in mind. Whenever you're reading something looking for Jesus in the Old Testament and you discover something about what it means to be in him, if, that, if what you have discovered is right, then you should find confirmation of that somewhere else in Scripture. If you're reading something that's pointing forward to Jesus and what you have discovered there is correct, then you should be able to find a mirror image of that in something in the New Testament that's pointing back to Jesus. So what's this telling us about our salvation now? Well, God says, I have chosen this place. What's the place he's talking about? Well, in the immediate context, he's talking about the temple, which we now know represents us. Our bodies now are a temple of God. So, is this saying that we are saved because God chose us to be saved? Well, is there confirmation of that in the New Testament? John 15, 16, Jesus said, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. Now, you might say, well, he was talking to his 12 disciples. I mean, obviously, he chose them to follow him. He's just talking about the disciples there. Okay, what about Ephesians 1, 4? Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Or Colossians three twelve. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, etc. And in 2 Thessalonians 2, 13. God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. I don't know how clearer that can be. Amen. Revelation seven fourteen. I just love this one. These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. Amen. And so in your notes there under verse 12... We are chosen by God to be saved. Now, why is it good to know that you're chosen? Well, first of all, it keeps us from being able to steal any of the glory of God for ourselves. There's absolutely nothing that we can take credit for when it comes to our salvation. And it should also be a very humbling thing to know that God chose you. Because you ought to know that you didn't do anything to deserve being chosen. And there is nothing in you that would warrant that, that would make you worthy 
of being chosen, and yet God would choose to do that anyway, man, what a humbling thing. And it also gives us a great sense of peace and security, which we'll see more in a moment. But back to the text. In verse 12 again, he says, I have chosen this place for myself. Don't let pride creep in to think that God chose you just because you are all that. You aren't nothing apart from him. Next point, he didn't choose us because of us. He chose us because of him. Romans eleven thirty six. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And then he says, I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. Now, it would be very easy with that orphan mentality to think that this means we're supposed to be making a bunch of sacrifices somehow. I mean, if the house he's referring to is ultimately about us and he calls a house a house of sacrifice, then it might seem that we are the ones that need to be making the sacrifices. But what I believe he's talking about is the next thing. The impact of Jesus' sacrifice should be evident in the life that we live. Our house, the temple of our bodies, should be reflecting Jesus' ultimate sacrifice. Well, how do we know it isn't about us having to make some sort of sacrifice to, to make God happy and appease him in any way? Well, primarily because of Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10 is talking about how things were done over the, under the old covenant and the way people would make sacrifices in order to remain in God's favor and to be in good standing with him. And verse 3 and 4 says, But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible of the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And then in verse 12, But he, talking about Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. And then verse 18, now where there, is, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. When you do sin, there's absolutely nothing that you can do to try to make up for it. I mean, you can try, but your efforts are going to be totally in vain. Nothing that you can do to make up for the sin that you commit. The only thing left for you to do is to run to Jesus. Just run to him when it happens. So one way that the sacrifice of Jesus is made evident in our life is that when we do sin, instead of hiding in shame or trying to make up for it with God somehow, instead, we just run straight to Jesus. That shows that we understand what his sacrifice was ultimately about. Now let's look at the next verse in the text, verse 13. God says, if I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people. What we're looking at now is a metaphor for life without Jesus. This is a perfect description of the condition that we are all born with, that we come into this world with and what we have until Jesus changes us. How do I know that? Well, he says, if I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain. 
Psalm 72 is a prayer that David prays, but it is also a prophecy of what would come through Jesus. And David describes salvation like this in verse 6. May he come down like rain upon the mowed grass. That's how he describes the salvation of the Lord. Hosea is another book of messianic prophecy. And in chapter 6 of verse 3, it says, He will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. And Hosea 10, 12, For it is time to seek the Lord until he comes to rain righteousness on you. And so rain is symbolic of salvation that the Lord would send down through Jesus. And then next he says, or if I command the locust to devour the lamb. The locust devouring the lamb is symbolic of all that we lose because of sin. Symbolic of all that was lost originally in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve first sinned, that perfect relationship that they had with the Father and everything that that was included in that, how all of that was completely lost when sin and rebellion entered. I've done many sermons on what those things were and how Jesus came to restore those back to us with the Father. The book of Joel is another prophetic book. And verse 25 of Joel 2 speaks to this and what Jesus would do when he comes. It says, Then I will make up to you for the years the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, the gnawing locust. He's talking about how Jesus comes and restores everything that we lost because of sin. And then the last thing he says in verse 13 or if I send pestilence among my people. A pestilence is an epidemic disease that spreads from one person to another. This is a great metaphor for the curse of sin. Romans 5.12 says this directly. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. It's talking about how the curse of sin that started with Adam spread to everyone else who has come since then. Jesus is the only one who can break that curse. So what verse 13 is describing there in your notes, life apart from Christ. Verse 13 is a description of the depravity of man that we all come into this world with. That only Jesus can change. Now, let's look at verse 14 again in light of everything that I just said. And my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. This verse is a transition from life apart from Christ to life in Christ. And notice the order in which he says things here. First he says, if my people who are called by my name, if this is a description of salvation, then that right there confirms the fact that salvation is all God's doing, that he is the one that initiates our salvation. Two weeks ago we looked at... um, 
the fact that apart from Christ, we are spiritually dead and what that means. Verse 13 is a picture of that, just dry, locust, pestilence. And so for us to be able to hear God's call or to be able to see our own sinful condition and and God's remedy for that, uh, God has to be the one to open our ears to hear him and open our eyes to see him. He is the one who initiates our salvation. So in order to be saved, you first have to be called by him, which goes back to the fact that he chooses us. Now, the rest of what we tend to take in this verse as a plan for saving our country is actually a description of our response to God's call. First, we humble ourselves. We acknowledge the fact that he's God and we aren't, that we are lost and in need of saving, that we are sick and in need of healing, we are broken in need of mending, we are guilty in need of forgiveness, that we are helpless without him. That's humbling yourself. And then pray, seek his face, turn from your wicked ways. What is that? That's repentance. It's repentance. This is describing someone turning from their sin as they turn to Jesus. And that's confirmed with the phrase, seek my face. I mean, how else could you seek the face of God apart from Jesus? You can't. In John 14, Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and that'll be enough. And Jesus answered him and said, He who has seen me has seen the Father. It's like the words in that song, Mary, did you know? When you kiss your little baby, you kiss the face of God. So in your notes, verse 14, God calls, we repent, and receive Jesus. And what happens when we do that? The rest of the verse. Then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Remember, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. And so this verse for Christians should not be read as, if I do this, then God will do this. Because Jesus fulfills it, this verse is what God has done in you. For those who are lost, it is what God will do if they repent and receive Jesus. And the reason we want to take this and apply it to our nation is, I think, because we take the word land literally. But if you remember from last week that the things that we read in the Old Testament in their immediate context were not really ultimately about those things themselves, but they were pointing to something more, something better. And this is a perfect example of what we saw in the illustration with the shadow. I mean, just looking at the shadow... We assume that the woman was with child, but seeing the shadow in light of the substance, we could see it for what it really was. And so here, if we just focus on the shadow here in 2 Chronicles 7.14, all we're going to see is this is talking about physical land. But when looking at it in light of the substance of the gospel, we can see that it's about something else. Land in the Old Testament was a metaphor for life. 
For example, we know that the story of Moses leading the Israelites out of the bondage of slavery into the promised land of Israel was ultimately about Jesus leading his people out of the bondage of sin into the promised land of salvation. It never was about an earthly kingdom. It was about a spiritual kingdom. It never was ultimately about the physical land. And yet people still today think that it is. And that's why you still have that continuous fighting that still goes on over there. And so land in Second Chronicles 7.14 is not symbolic of the physical land of the United States. It's symbolic of your life. And because Jesus fulfills the text, for those of you who are saved, this means your life, your land in him is healed. Your life is healed. That broken fellowship that you had with God is healed in him. Now, looking at this from that perspective makes verse 15 and 16 so good. Here comes some good news. Verse 15, he says, Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. You ever have those times where you wonder if God really is hearing your prayers? Well, if you are in Christ, you have the promise and the assurance right here that he hears every one of them. And it's not based on your behavior. It's not based on what you do. It's based on what Jesus has already done. Because you're in him, God hears you. But it goes beyond that. The point for verse 15, God not only hears your prayers, he is paying close attention to you. says, my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. How many of you know there's a big difference between hearing someone and paying attention to someone? I can hear my wife talking to me just fine while I'm watching a football game on television. (laughs) I hear. Don't go there, somebody said. Oh, I've been there, and I've got the scars to prove it. (laughs) she'll be pretty quick to point out that I may be hearing her but I'm not being attentive to her in order to be attentive in order to pay attention I've got to turn the TV off and look at her in the face (laughs) listen God doesn't just hear you he's paying attention to you women Your husband may not pay attention to you the way you want him to, but you've got the undivided attention of your father. You've got his attention. Verse 16, he says, For I have chosen and consecrated this house. Now we've gone from chosen to consecrated. What does that mean? Consecrated means set apart for a special purpose. 1 Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, set apart for himself, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
Next point. You have been set apart for the purpose of displaying the glory and the worth of Christ. With the life that you live and the words that you say. And then the rest of 16. That my name may be there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. I know there are some of you who really struggle with the security and the assurance of your salvation. And you're scared that you're going to lose it if you mess up just enough. And I know how miserable that is because that is how I used to live in my relationship with the Lord for a while. I'm just scared to death that if I did this sin one more time, if I forgot to ask for forgiveness for something before I went to bed and died in my sleep or, or anything, man, I was, it was going to be gone just like that and I'd never have it again. I was just not able to, to enjoy him like he wants us to. I've done many sermons on the security of the believer, the fact that authentic salvation is not something that you can lose, and so I'm not going to get into all the verses that tell us this, but this one right here in 2 Chronicles seven sixteen, I believe, speaks loud enough by itself. My name may be there for how long? Forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually with no end. Once God chooses you, calls you, and saves you, last point of the message, you are his forever. Forever. So here's the deal. Here's how I want to wrap all this up. Some of you may be a little disappointed to discover that 2 Chronicles 7.14 is not a plan for saving our country. And I get that. I mean, we want to see it turn around so bad we are desperate to just grab hold of something that we think might be the answer for it. Now, in a way, it still is. I mean, if enough people turn from their sin and receive Jesus, then that would be a very good thing for our country, would it not? Yes. Folks, Jesus is the only answer for every problem that our country has right now. He's the only answer. And because of that truth, I can tell you right now, neither Hillary Clinton nor Donald Trump are going to save our country. And anyone who is putting their hope in any of those two disappointing choices that we have for president is a fool. If your hope is in any man, you're a fool. Because no man is going to turn this country around and save it. Our only hope is found in Jesus. Uh, Yeah. That doesn't mean don't vote. Vote. But just know that your only hope is in Jesus. And then pray for whoever you vote for to find him. That they will find him. 
I grieve to think about what could be in store for our nation in the days ahead, no matter who gets voted into office. And it could be very easy to slip down into a pit of depression over it or get full of anxiety and fear because of it. But church, no matter what happens to this country, no matter how bad things get in this world, we have promises right here that we just looked at that will not be affected in the least bit. We have been chosen by the one who holds all things in the palm of his hand. The one who directs all the events that are going on in this world right now, not for the benefit necessarily of the United States, but for the benefit of his bride, the church. That's you and me. Those in power and government may not listen to us. They may not pay any attention to us at all other than just to want to shut us down and silence us. But that doesn't matter. We've got the undivided attention of the one who rules over them. He has rescued you out of the darkness that has overtaken this world and this country more and more. And he has set you apart for his own possession and great purpose. And because of what Jesus has done, you'll be his forever. Folks, we may lose our nation, but we'll never lose these promises. We'll never lose our standing with God. We'll never lose his love. We will never lose the incredible things that he still has in store for us. The land of our nation may be sick, may be terminally ill, and may die. But because of the Father's great love that is poured out on you through Jesus, your land, your life is completely healed. You're healed. We need to start living like people who have been healed by Jesus, whose lives have been healed because this country is so broken. It's going to be a stark contrast to what they're used to seeing. He's our only hope. And we've got to let people know that. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you have given us the answer. You have given us the solution, the remedy. His name is Jesus. Lord, I thank you for assuring us this morning of the good things that we have in you. And Lord, I just pray that Some of these truths are what somebody really needed to hear this morning. Somebody that may be struggling with their forgiveness. Struggling with wondering if whether or not you're hearing them. Feeling like they're all alone in this world. Those that are still under a weight of guilt trying to do things to make up for their sin, trying to remove their guilt on their own. God, I pray that they heard truth that would bring them straight to you. And they would find in you the only one who removes all that. God, for your people who this text applies to right now, Lord, I pray that our lives would match this. 
God, I pray that the truths here would become something that we don't just sing about or read about. But God, there will be things that we live out. Holy Spirit, you're the only one that can make that happen. And so I'm asking you, you just to do a heart surgery in us this morning. Whatever in our life is keeping us from being able to display you accurately, I pray that you would remove whatever lie we are believing in that's not allowing us to walk in your truth. I pray that you would dispel that right now. God, I pray for repentance. Lord, let us see your glory. Have your way in the remainder of this time. Do what you need to do to mold us into those people. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for the good news that you have for us. We honor you. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.